Blog Talk Radio. Given what most Americans believe, the next statement may be more shocking than any previous. The fact is, the United States is not a country, but a corporation contractually created by the Constitution. 
your state is a country, per the law, and your original citizenship is of that country. Our founders instituted themselves to be first and foremost citizens of their respective states. As of 1787, those states already had formed a union, and they created the Constitution for the purpose of perfecting that union in forming a national government. They did not intend that the new nation have any jurisdiction or powers over the states or their citizens that were not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. They stated this point quite clearly in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the Constitution. They granted the United States exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may become the seat of the government of the United States, our District of Columbia, and to exercise authority over all places purchased by the consent of the states. And that is all. The framers further secured the rights of the people with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments in the Bill of Rights. In the Ninth, they established that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And in the Tenth, they made clear that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. The only way the federal government can have any jurisdiction beyond these constitutional clauses is by written permission or contract. Which leads us to another piece of the puzzle, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1868 following the Civil War. As barbaric as it may sound today, the black slaves prior to the conclusion of the Civil War were legally considered to be property with none of the rights or privileges of free-born people, only duties. The money interests took advantage of America's desire to free the slaves and found a way to use the swiftly adopted post-war constitutional amendments to enslave all of the people. The deceit is in the wording of both the 13th and 14th Amendments. You will note that the 13th Amendment provides that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. But why the emphasis on involuntary servitude? Isn't it the same thing as slavery? Sure it is. But they had to mention the concept of involuntary servitude because they wished to retain another type of slavery, voluntary servitude. Voluntary servitude is an ancient and established concept. It was the way serfs became subjects to their lords during feudal times in England and other European countries. It was a way for free men to earn a living at a time when all property was held by a select few, and thus anyone who wanted to farm and support their family had first to agree to be subject to a lord of the land. Our forefathers hated this concept and designed our Constitution to exclude titles of nobility, making all Americans sovereign. The 14th Amendment turned the intention of the founders on its ear by making voluntary servitude a requirement for former slaves to gain the rights already guaranteed to free-born United States citizens. When the slaves were released from their involuntary servitude following the war, their status was changed from that of being property to that of being a person. But being a person still entitled them to none of the rights associated with citizenship. 
So the 14th Amendment ostensibly was written to provide the former slaves with the same constitutional rights of freeborn American citizens, but only if they agreed first to become subject to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, making oneself paramountly, that is, first subject to the jurisdiction of the laws of the United States, however, limits access to parts of the Bill of Rights, as we'll explain in a moment. But first remember, anyone who voluntarily subjects himself to the laws or jurisdiction of another is, in every way, obligated to abide by the terms of any contracts or laws established by whomever establishes the rules of the contract. In simple terms, this meant that the former slaves became subjects first to the United States and secondly to the state in which they lived. They had no sovereignty whatsoever. This status had never existed in the United States prior to that time. The 14th Amendment created a new class of citizenship in the United States, a second-class citizenship. Up until 1868, every American was a paramount citizen of their state, and by virtue of that, also a citizen of the United States, with full individual sovereignty as guaranteed by Amendments 9 and 10 in the Bill of Rights. But so-called naturalized citizens, or 14th Amendment citizens, are paramountly subject to all laws of the United States, and, having no status as freeborn citizens, have no access at all to the unenumerated rights retained for the people by Articles 9 and 10 of the Bill of Rights. That's because, in order to get any rights at all, they had to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the corporate United States, which left them no unenumerated rights. The only rights they had were those specifically written into the Constitution. The sad tragedy of America today is that all U.S. citizens, regardless of race, are now 14th Amendment slaves due to contracts with the government of the United States through Social Security, birth certificates, driving licenses, citizenship statements, tax forms, and many other documents. The true paramount citizenship that all Americans deserve is that of their respective state, which is a sovereign citizenship. Such status would exempt them from federal and state income taxes, as well as property and inheritance taxes. This sovereign citizenship was the status held by our forefathers. Now, if you're still thinking that the U.S. government needs to have a central bank and collect income tax or it will collapse, think again. Over two-thirds of the federal government's income is derived from sources other than income tax. There is even evidence suggesting that none of your income tax is used by the government. Fees, excise taxes, tariffs, sales taxes, and other forms of income have easily supported the U.S. budget in the past and could easily support it now. We have done without a national bank for large stretches of our history, and the U.S. Treasury is perfectly capable of printing and managing a money supply. In fact, the only constitutionally sanctioned currency is backed by gold or other precious metals. This is a far more stable form of currency and is the type of money the Treasury was designed to handle. The government was doing so well collecting money under these original laws that it had amassed a huge surplus by the time this cartoon was penned a hundred years later in 1887, when there still was no income tax collected at all. Up to this point, we have shown you how the money interests have 
one, established the Federal Reserve System, and two, exploited a second class of citizenship created by the 14th Amendment for other purposes. And we have mentioned a few names involved in the creation of the Fed. But there are other organizations working for our economic enslavement as well, along with other extremely rich and powerful international bankers. Those who support the Fed have created a global movement to centralize economic power in various puppet organizations that preach peace and stability through some variation of socialism, but act aggressively to draw nations into a web of foreign debt and servitude to their agenda. The United Nations, the World Monetary Fund, and the Council on Foreign Relations are all committed to an agenda of world domination through manipulation of economic power. The Council on Foreign Relations openly admits to being a private club, yet it is the primary recruiting post in both international banking and the federal government of the United States. Richard Nixon, Nelson Rockefeller, John Foster Dulles, Dean Rusk, Alger Hiss, Robert S. McNamara, and every president since FDR, with the exception of John Kennedy, have been members of this exclusive club where super financiers and your elected representatives can mix freely and plan the next step in the consolidation of power in a new world order. Personally, niggas rather work for the man than to work with me Just so they can pretend they on my level, that shit is irking to me Pride always going for the fall, almost certainly It's disturbing what I grow What I grow Survey says you not even close Everybody's bosses to the time to pay for the office To them invoices separate the men from the boys over here, we measure success by how many people successful next to you. Here we say you broke if everybody gets broke except for you. Ow.
but my mama will My great, great grandchildren already rich That's a lot of brown turn on your Forbes list Frolicking around my compound on my fortress I'll be riding around with my seat reclining Dropping my daughter off at school every morning We slamming car doors I be trolling on these bum You ain't talking about nothing, I ain't got no time Oh, yeah, tell them cats, they gotta relax Those in a slam, mama getting fat from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L. on the new Evolution Radio Network. Take out a dollar. Turn it, turn it all on the back side. Look up in the right-hand corner of over the eagle's head. What do you see? All right. That's the law of correspondence. As above, so below. As within, so without. As without, so within. When you get power of the Spirit, from the Spirit, you have power in heaven, which is in mind, as well as power on the earth, which is in body. Very important to understand that because the power you're receiving is not to rule somebody else, it's to rule yourself. To heal yourself. To master yourself. To transform yourself. That's what power is for. Then, go heal someone else. If you need a patient, it is you. If you need some pupils, you got them. If you want to do any teaching, work on you. That's your goal. You are your own responsibility. The greatest, most important person you'll ever meet down here is you. You must save you. Even the sister that goes to church is saving herself. But there's so much more that you can do besides go to church. I don't knock church. I'm glad it's there because it, it, it's a, a, a God sin and a God save for black folks. The church is an intricate part of our predicament in the Western Hemisphere. We are, most assuredly, as history relates, a spiritual people. Religion is the beginning of spirituality. Unfortunately, it appears it's becoming interference <laughs> until that reverend finds out 
more or lets folks know he knows more, one or the other. You know, some of them short step it. Some of them do know and they're not telling. I don't want to get into that. I'm getting all off here. I'm okay. Number one, the 14th Amendment is very questionable as to whether or not somebody can come over, have a baby, and immediately that baby is a citizen. Uh, okay? you know, the court has pretty much said you're that right. it reads an immigrant well, there. This, this is a minority legal Chris, opinion you're talking about. there are many people that totally feel that... They that may are, want look, it that way. Amending is too big a deal. It's going to take... It'll be two terms. I'd be in my second term or my eighth year by the time, assuming everything went smoothly, because to amend the Constitution... Takes a long time. But I believe... Especially on a very divisive I issue. I believe you can win it legally, okay? I believe you can win it legally. And in any event, the parents have to leave. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after these messages on Evolution Radio. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Ever told on it, brother? Nope. Ever squeeze the trigger? Yep. Ever set a brother up? No. Ever helped a brother out when he was down on the side? Yeah. You a sap? No. You a boss player? You a Mac? Yeah. Let me hold a couple dollars. No. Y'all still be popping y'all collars? Yeah. Stock reels on the straight? No. Paint wetter than the lake? Yeah. Poodle in my blood? No. Number third? Yeah. You a loser? No. Winner? Yeah. Starving? No. Dinner? Yeah. You still sell dope? Now you clean it in the bar done so? Yeah. Got a little Duda? No. Got a supper, got a Ruger? Yeah. You in love with the house? No. She bringing you the dough? Yeah. You gon' cry if she leave? No. You gon' fly overseas? Yeah. Everybody got choice. I choose to get money, I'm stuck to this bread. Everybody got choice. These bitches and I'm all in their head. Everybody got choice. Keep it one thousand, I done liked it, I chow. Everybody got choice. These bitch be hatin', I already know, but I never go broke. No, no, no. I'ma stay gettin' money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ain't gotta spend my soul. No, no, no. I'ma stay gettin' money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you broke, you ain't like me. No, no, no. I'ma stay gettin' money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give a fuck if you don't like me. No, no, I'ma stay gettin' money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Lazy? No. Got the to drop crazy? Yeah. Hater? No. Wanna see a player get paper? Yeah. Traitor? No. Loyal to my soil, not a faker? Yeah.
is a rock? Yep. Slow? No. Train to go? Yep. Your team weak? No. You respected in the street need? Yep. Shallow? No. Didn't need? Yep. Broke? No. Chinney? Yep. Not a BB or a pellet gun? No. But a long barrel based drum? Yep. If I get into a rock run? No. I'ma give a brother a bear run? Yep. Still live in the track? No. You ever go back? To this bread. Everybody got choice. This is the shoes and I'm all in their head. Everybody got choice. Keep it one thou out of life that I chow. Everybody got choice. These brothers be hating, I already know, but I never go broke. No, no, no. I'm stay getting money. Something uh, a yogi master said, his spirit told him when he came home very tired one night, and he worn out, and he laid down to, to go to sleep. He was too tired to pray, too tired to meditate, and the spirit told him to turn over and meditate. And he started hemming and hawing and so forth, and the spirit told him again, meditate. And being a practiced individual discipline, and knowing that there's something special about those moments, he turned over and meditated. Spirit shot him out there in the infinity <laughs> you know, and hooked him up. You know, We're not listening to whom we're supposed to be listening to. We're listening to the things that worry and trouble us. The things that confuse us occupy much of our minds. There's an answer for every question. There's a solution to every problem. Where is it? Inside. There's no more God out here than there is in there. Now, I'm going to tell you something important because, see, Somehow, we don't think we're supposed to get rich unless we work and save our money. And that's a practical, good way to do so. And, and I'm not going to knock that, you know. You know, as, as much as I dislike eight hours a day, <laughs> it's practical and it's significant and it gives a, a sense of purpose and direction. Wealth is given. It is not earned. It is given to the one who asks for it. Oprah is rich because Oprah asked for it. Here's an excellent example of just the opposite. Six or seven white guys in Cleveland, Ohio, pool their resources together to buy lottery tickets for that weekend's 20 million. 
They went in, bought the tickets, came out of the store with the tickets. One of them suggested to the group, hey, we spent too much money on these tickets. Let's cash some of them back in. They did. And they took the winning tickets back to the store. It wasn't their money. Look at the game shows. First, look at the games that pay dividends, money. Look at them. While we sit here, somebody's getting rich. And I want you to think about that instead of somebody tricking you out of your check. Money is an idea. How many ideas can you contain? What is it that brings you your good? It is desire. What are you passionate about? What is it that you really love with all your feelings? Can you transfer that to money? Yes, you can, if you want to. You can give money and won't be able to keep it. You can get rich and lose it all. Perfect example of Dennis Rodman is still trying his best to destroy the blessings that something gave him. This man got on national television and told the world that he thought he did not belong in the NBA. And he's not in there anymore. One of the best rebounders in the NBA. You know, Systematically, this man kept trying to destroy everything that something was giving him. He was doing it to himself, the, not the white boy. He was doing it to himself. Very good. The power of the word, spoken word. And we need to control that faculty. Huh? Because we take words and throw them like daggers, and they get results. We are vibrational beings. You know, we're not just flesh and blood. You know, uh, if you put anything under a microscope, an intense microscope, you're going to ultimately see that everything is vibration. And, in, and as the scientists are not telling us, there's information there. But it's not solid. It's always moving. So we're vibrational beings. And when we lift our vibration to what we want to experience, it happens first on a vibratory level. And then it shows up and manifests in our life. So uh, people who are holding on to rancor, animosity, mm -hmm. they're slowing down their vibration. Okay.
Another way of saying is you cannot have what you're not willing to become vibrationally. Ah. If you do get it, you'll lose it. Ah. You see, this is why people, they'll win the lottery, they, they lose everything, <laughs> yeah. or they'll finally get the person they think they Absolutely. want to be with. They can't keep, the, can't keep the relationship, or they'll get a modicum of success but can't hold on to it, because inside they weren't vibrationally aligned. They really hadn't become it. So you can temporarily manipulate and get things, but to have it completely, you have to lift your vibration and, and become that in, in, in vibration. You're not really attracting things to you. You're really radiating. Ah, It's really a radiation. I can cry right now. It's like if I become the vibrational frequency of love, harmony, peace, and I'm radiating that. That's the key. It's going to show up in my life. That's the key. Yeah. That's the word. You're not attracting it. You have to be it and radiate it, and then it, it comes, it is drawn to you. Right. And you to it. Yeah. You have to like yourself when you're by yourself. Yeah. You have to like yourself. I mean, when, you, when you're by yourself, you have to look at those thoughts, the beautiful thoughts, the crazy thoughts. Mm -hmm. You have to embrace yourself. You have to forgive yourself. You have to love yourself. And when you can fall in love with yourself and like yourself when you're by yourself, now you can be with others. But if you don't like yourself when you're by yourself, then you're pulling on others to make you happy. Is it possible to life vision when you're at the bottom? Not only is it possible, that's probably the best time to do it. When circumstances and situations are pressing in upon us, the only way we can overcome them is to go within. To actually begin to ask very empowering questions with the awareness that this universal presence and its law will answer any question that you ask. So if you're in a situation that uh, is pressing on you and you ask, what's trying to emerge in my life? What is my gift to share? Mm. What is my purpose? Why am I here on the planet? Not just how can I pay my rent, not just how can I stop the pain. You ask empowering questions, the universe will answer these questions in a language and in a way that you can understand. There'll be inner prompting, there'll be intuitive hits, nudges, signs, symbols, dreams. It'll come in the language of the, own, the, the individual soul and heart. The difficulty is that when people are in tough situations, they ask disempowering questions. Whoa. They say, what's wrong? Mm -hmm. Who's to blame? Yeah. Why, Why me? me? Yes. Those are the disempowering questions. So the universe will answer those too. It'll pull on the database of human experience and say you were born on the wrong side of the tracks or you were born on the right side of the tracks or you this happened or that happened. It will give you a, a, a bevy of excuses. But if you ask an empowering question, you'll get an answer to rise above the muck. So it's all about the question, the sincerity of the question, and then the ability and the willingness to, to really listen, to really be available. That, that's where the juice is. And that is available to every human being. Whether an individual is in prison, whether an individual is imprisoned by circumstance, imprisoned in their own mind about an event that happened in their past, it doesn't matter. Once you ask with sincerity, the universe will answer. That's, that's the way it operates. You know, it goes back to asking the question. Yeah. And it, but it also goes back to understanding that the presence of God has never made a mistake. Yeah doesn't do do-overs and doesn't repeat itself. Therefore, each of us are unique expressions of the infinite. The way the infinite gets to express its infinite nature is through its uniqueness. Therefore, I have a mandate 
to discover myself, find out who and what I am, what my purpose is, and to express it. And that, and that idea within us yeah. is infinite and is always unfolding. So it's not a one and done. It's not, I've arrived. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm always on a journey of unfolding. You grow where you're planted. You grow where you're planted. And, and then you ask, what's trying to emerge? What's trying to unfold? And you'll start to get hints. You start to take baby steps walking in that direction. And as you take baby steps, inertia becomes momentum. Mm-hmm. And then possibilities start to reveal themselves. Potential starts to be activated. And, and you find yourself, as you look back, wow, I'm changed. I'm different. Yeah. When did that happen? You have to be in alignment with it. You have to have a level of practice. You have to give up your resistance to the circumstance. In other words, you're, it's, you're not arguing and resisting the circum- with the circumstance. Yeah. I know this person said, I prayed. I did that. God hadn't <laughs> answered me yet. Yeah. This is the deal. God is always answering. Yes. But are we receiving? Are we listening? Are we available? Yeah. So prayer, meditation, life visioning, it attunes us to become in alignment yeah. with that vibration. So we actually can hear it. We can actually feel it and then move in that direction. Many people, uh, if their prayers would be answered, they couldn't even receive it. They're not, they're not vibrationally ready. Victim consciousness is where many people live. Yeah. Somebody did it to me. The reason why I'm not happy is because they just make, you know, my ex-boyfriend, my boss. The world isn't fair. The world isn't fair. They're doing it to me. The reason why I'm not happy is somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. God did it to me. The devil did it to me. My astrological sign did it to me. The numbers did my it to mother. me. My mother. My karma. Yeah. Okay. That's the victim stage. Every victim has a victim story. You ask somebody, a victim, what's going on, they'll give you a list of complaints about what's wrong and who did it. Fannie Lou Hamer once said, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. When you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, something happens and you start to open up to a possibility that maybe, maybe I'm in my own way. Maybe there's something more than, than what meets the eye. You're going to need something that is not within your little mind and your little perception. And that's where prayer comes in. That's where meditation comes in. That's where life visioning comes in. So if you just said, help, I'm open. I'm available to something new. Now you're on your way. Yeah. Help is a prayer. Help, help is a prayer. Yeah. I, I say, when I use the word help, I say, hello, eternal, loving presence. That's what help means to me. Yeah. Hello, eternal, eternal loving, loving presence. Wow, that's a good one. Back in the day when the Bodhi tree existed and a book fell off the shelf. Just, I walked in and the book just slammed on the floor off the shelf. And it was exactly what I needed to read at that time. And so I learned about manifestation. I learned about the second stage which is how to manifest, which is establishing intention, beginning to see visually the kind of life you want to uh, live, beginning to have conversation about that kind of life. I tell people you have to talk about it more than you talk about your problems because at the end of the day, if you're complaining more than you're talking about your vision, then you're in inertia. So this is a shift that takes place where you're actually talking about the possibilities mm-hmm. more than you're talking about your issues. Yeah. But you don't deny the issues. Bad things have happened to people. 
You're not denying that those things have happened. But it's the energy that you give to it. That yes. is a definite true fact. If you start talking about somebody or you're engaged in a conversation where you're gossiping, before long, you're spiraling down. Energy goes into those lower frequencies. Yep. Doubt, worry, fear. All, now you're in, you're in that sediment. Mm-hmm. You're in that dynamic. Mm-hmm. But if you start talking about possibility, even, even if you don't know how to get there, then your energy starts to go up. Mm-hmm. You know, what if you ask a what if question? You know, what if, what if all my needs were met? What would I be doing in my life? What if everything is really working together for my good? What if all the bad things that have happened in my life are leading me to activating some great potential in my, in my experience? Mm-hmm. What if God really is on my side? Yeah. You know, you ask a what if question. And you start to notice little tiny miracles happening in your life. Mm-hmm. Things start to manifest. You don't know how they got there. The, the primary dark night of the soul is when you're losing your identification yeah. with your previous identity, but you don't yet have an identification with what's new emerging. You're mm-hmm. in That's good. the dark. That's good. You don't know. Uh, you, you, you knew this is who you used to be, yeah. but you're not that anymore. But who you're becoming, you're not that either. So it's dark. It's really, and sometimes it's excruciating. Sometimes it's a lot of fear, a lot of disconnect. And I, I, I tell people that when you're going through that, mm-hmm. tell them to ask this question. If this experience were to last forever, yeah. what quality would have to emerge for me to have peace of mind? Ooh. So if you ask that question, and you say, oh, if, I, if, I, if, I, is this, if this particular experience was, was going to last forever, I would, need, I would need some strength, I would need some, some peace, I would need a little bit more, you know, name whatever quality. And what happens is, when your attention starts focusing on that quality, rather than resisting the dark night, then the process is speeded up. And your identification, you move through it, you move it, through it faster. Yeah. Pain pushes until the vision pulls. So, life is progressive, and it's pushing you, yeah until you get pulled by a larger vision. So once you have a vision that you can articulate. Okay, so pain pushes you, so it get, it's hard, it's harder, it's harder, it's harder, and it's trying to force you into having a vision, a vision yes. that's bigger than, than, than the, the pain. pain. And that's a principle. Potential is always bigger than the problem. Potential is always bigger than the problem. Your potential is infinite and is always bigger than whatever problem you're going through. You begin to have a, a, a vision about the possibility. Mm-hmm. You start to be pulled by it. And then once you really sincerely embrace it yeah. and your life begins to be, okay, when I wake up this morning, I'm going to walk in the direction of my purpose. I'm going to walk in the direction of my vision. I'm going to walk in the direction of that possibility and the potential yes. instead of allowing myself to go, oh, woe is me, or I can't believe. Or that. Right. I'm going to walk in the... The cosmic yeah. two by four doesn't need to hit you as much. Wow. You're pulled. You're being pulled more by joy and it's like... I'm being pulled by some, something. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges. Of course. Of course. We don't, we don't, we're not praying to live a challenge-free life. We're praying that the challenges that come activate latent potential. Understanding that pain pushes until vision pulls. Ask what-if questions. Yes. Begin to see, visualize the kind of life you want to live. Mm-hmm. Begin to talk about it. Begin to write it down. Begin to dream about it. And then what I, what I teach is... You talk about it, 
doesn't mean you talk to everybody because everyone is not trustworthy. That's right. You talk to selected friends. About it. About it. You talk to it. Uh-huh. You actually talk to the vision. Talk to the possibility. Talk to love. You talk to peace. You talk to prosperity. I see you everywhere. I see you prosperity in the lawn. I see you abundance on the, in the grain of the sand. I see you everywhere. Mm-hmm. You talk to it. And then after a while, you're talking from it. Mm-hmm. Listening to Evolution Radio. Visit MakeMoreCommerce.com for more remedies with Joey L. Where remedy meets preparation.
analyze and sound true Come test me, I never cower For the love of money, son I'm giving lead showers Stop screaming, you know the demon said it's best to die And even if Jehovah witness, man, he'll never testify The evil To understand the Second Amendment to the Constitution, we should start with the words of the amendment itself. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's just one simple, short sentence. But over the last 30 years, it has become the subject of passionate advocacy and intense political controversy. Throughout that time, we have debated the Second Amendment. To those who are opposed to more gun control, every restriction of their rights is a violation of the Second Amendment. To those who support more gun control, none of the proposals or restrictions ever violate the Second Amendment. As a lawyer, I understand and appreciate the need for clarity in the law. If we expect citizens to comply with the law, we must be clear about their legal rights and responsibilities. Unfortunately, in the case of the Second Amendment, it's become shrouded in controversy and distortion. If we are ever going to reduce the level of gun violence in this country, this distortion must first end. So, how did we get here? And what is the meaning of the Second Amendment? First, a bit of history. As the name implies, it was part of the first ten amendments, sometimes referred to as our Bill of Rights. Those other nine amendments, however, have never been the subject of the intense scrutiny and controversy about their basic purpose and meaning, as has the Second Amendment. What did our founding fathers really mean when they referred to the need for a well-regulated militia? And what is a militia anyway? Is it that states were allowed to have their own armies without interference from the federal government? Or is it that citizens were allowed to have guns without interference from either the state or the federal government? This controversy about the Second Amendment is a recent phenomenon. For the first 200 years, it was a sleepy provision that was only interest to a few legal historians. In my law school class in 1976 on constitutional law, the Second Amendment was just a footnote in the textbook, and as best I can remember, we never discussed it in the classroom. You see, there were hardly any cases decided in the 19th or 20th century 
about the Second Amendment. And those few that were gave it a very narrow interpretation. For example, in 1939, when organized crime was a serious problem, the Supreme Court ruled that a federal prohibition on the interstate transportation of sawed-off shotguns did not violate the Second Amendment. The court explained that the Second Amendment was designed to protect state militia. And as state militia were out of vogue in the 20th century, the continued relevance of the Second Amendment became highly questionable. But all this changed late in the 20th century, starting with the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and the resulting passage of the Gun Control Act of 1968, gun violence and restrictions on guns became a hot political issue. The issue continued as more and more violence occurred. We came as a nation struggled with such high-profile tragedies as the shooting of 15 students and teachers at Columbine High School in 1999. Now, at about the same time that this was occurring, a little-known organization, the National Rifle Association, was transforming itself from a sleepy nonprofit charity into a political powerhouse advocating for the rights of gun owners. For the first hundred years of the NRA, it was focused almost exclusively on marksmanship, awarding ribbons and prizes to young men learning to shoot firearms, including one I received at a summer camp in the 1960s. When this transformation was complete, the NRA came to the position that the Second Amendment guaranteed the absolute right of every American citizen to have a gun. This became the cornerstone over the last 30 years of the NRA's advocacy and fundraising. At one point, the president of the NRA, Charlton Heston, in a speech before the National Press Club, laid down the NRA's position on the Second Amendment in no uncertain terms. I simply cannot stand and watch a right guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States come apart under attack from those who either can't understand it, don't like the sound of it, or find themselves too philosophically squeamish to see why it remains the first among equals, because it is the right we turn to when all else fails. The problem with this is that there was no support in the law from lawyers, from judges, from legal scholars for this new position the NRA took. The NRA had come up with this position all by itself without any basis in the law. At one point, the former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, the Chief Justice, characterized the NRA's position as follows. One of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, 
on the American public that I have witnessed in my lifetime. This would be enough to end the story here, but we're far from the end. The NRA continued to advance its extreme position of the Second Amendment without any support. The issues of gun violence and gun control became more and more heated. And there were more cases filed under the Second Amendment seeking to overturn those few laws on the books that did restrict gun rights. Initially, those cases were unsuccessful. But eventually, in 2007, they struck gold when the United States Supreme Court, in a five-to-four decision entitled District of Columbia versus Heller, struck down a D.C. law that prohibited the ownership of handguns within the District of Columbia. The five-member majority threw out 200 years of legal precedent and ruled for the first time in our history that the Second Amendment is an individual right, not a right to protect outdated state militia. Initially, this looked like a big win for the NRA. This would open the floodgates to many more successful Second Amendment challenges. But surprisingly, that flood never came. Oh, there were cases filed under the Second Amendment after the Supreme Court's Heller decision, but almost none of them succeeded. You see, the Supreme Court in Heller explained that that Second Amendment, although an individual right, like other individual rights in the Constitution, was subject to limits, and the limitations on the Second Amendment were significant. Essentially what the court said is that under the Second Amendment, only law-abiding adults, not criminals, not minors, not the mentally ill, have a right to a gun, not any gun of their choice, to be kept in the home, not at work, not at school, and not in the car, for the self-defense of those in the home, not for hunting, not for target shooting, and certainly not for private vigilantes. So with these restrictions, we are now realizing that the proposals that have been debated in Congress and state legislatures over the last few decades do not violate the new Second Amendment. These are not violations of the court's new Heller-era interpretation of the Second Amendment. It's almost as if the judiciary hit the pause button on the Heller decision and have not used Heller to strike down any of the gun laws that are designed to keep us safe in our homes and our communities. Here in Maine, a disabled veteran claimed that he had a Second Amendment right to keep a gun in his Rockland apartment in order to stop criminals from breaking into his apartment and stealing his medication while he watched helplessly. When it became known that the tenant had a gun, the landlord went to court to evict the tenant for violating the no-gun clause in the tenant's lease. Despite these sympathetic facts, the Maine Superior Court 
in a controversial case in which I participated in the side of the landlord, ruled that tenants do not have a Second Amendment constitutional right to have guns in their apartment. So if a landlord wants to have a gun-free apartment building, tenants with guns will have to leave them with a friend or find someplace else to live. It is my hope that when the limitations on the Second Amendment are understood, the Second Amendment will no longer be an impediment to the passage of reasonable and common-sense gun laws. And when that occurs, the people of the United States, through their elected representatives, will be able to join the rest of the civilized world where guns are carefully and thoughtfully regulated in order to keep us safe from gun violence. Thank you. What's up? What's up? What's up? Peace to the gods. What's going on? Right here on the bottom line. <clears throat> Call the number 347-989-0194 if you want to get in the highlight and make sure you tell your people to call in. We're going to keep it short tonight because we're going to get to the audio. Um, but tonight we're talking about part two. This is part two of the Second Amendment. Uh, we're finishing up from last week. So um, we're going to jump right into it. Right? And last week we had a we had a nice discussion last week about the Second Amendment, and um, I played some of this court case, which we will um, play the second half of that case tonight, okay? But the Second Amendment, it deals with the right to bear arms, and, and the Second Amendment provides for a well-regulated militia being necessary um, to the security of a free state, right? the right of the people to keep and bear arms, right? And they shall not be infringed. And, you know, the funny thing is, is depending on who you're talking to, they try to define the people. Right? I have seen this just this this recently. Right? Um, somebody tried to say, well, certain only certain groups are the people. Right? And that's not true, because if you know anything about history, then you know about the Iroquois Confederacy, so you know where the people derive from. Right? And so, um, you know, I, I actually saw somebody recently and, and they thought that having somebody name people, right? And I want you to hear me carefully. Having someone with, with the name people, so if your name was John Peoples or Chris Peoples, right? They they thought that that meant that those were the people, right? And so, um, you know, as as we go through this tonight, right? I think that it's important to understand. Uh, who these things apply to okay uh, but to also understand that uh, the second amendment right and it, of course it's very controversy but uh, it applies to all people okay in this landmass right now whether you've been subject to special law, or as we call it, ex post facto, it's a different story. But the people, right, 
is a polarity of persons considered as the whole. So when we talk about politics, right, we, we use the term the people to refer to the collective or a community, um, ethnic groups, nations, right, common masses of peoples, or polities, right, and I, and I actually like when we, when we use polity, because polity is um, you know, political entities, political subdivisions, um, a group of collective people who have a collective identity, right? People who are organized by some form of an institutionalized social relation. Okay? These people who have mobilized together to bring their resources together, right? So um, you look at the Jewish communities, for example, or look at the Mormons. Right? These people live in political polities, right? And polities can be any other group of people that's organized for governance purposes, such as a corporate board, right? Government of a country, a country subdivision, even a sovereign state. Okay? So when we talk about the people, right, it is really important to understand that these rights don't just apply. And, and I know, you know, a lot of people. Um, if we go back far, far enough, you know, the Constitution didn't apply to so-called people of color, right? Um, and this is one of the reasons why they ended up doing the 14th Amendment, right? As flawed as some of the parts of it may be, right, it was put in place for a reason, right? But not to digress, um, I want to make sure that we have a solid understanding as we move forward tonight in this conversation, right? So, um, until recently, right, the, the Second Amendment was never recognized by the Supreme Court as giving private citizens the right to bear arms, right, or to even keep firearms, right? So, we talked about this last week, right, because in 2008, they did the, the five to four decision in uh, the District of Columbia versus Teller case, which is what the audio clip I just played is actually talking about, right? And this is where the court basically went in and they struck down the, dis- the District of Columbia's um, gun control laws based on Second Amendment grounds, right? So the majority opinion asserted that um, the, the, the inherent right to defend oneself, self-defense, right, is a Central idea, right? Basically saying that the Second Amendment right was an inherent right, right? You have a right to defend yourself. So the amendment conferred that people who are private individuals have a right to keep basic firearms. This included handguns, okay, uh, in your car or at home or on your person. All right. So, you look at the Heller case, right? There was some significance there. And I, I bring this case up because it's a case that you might want to get a certified copy of. Just like we do certified copies of Trinity versus Pac Nero, if you ever deal with issues with firearms, gun, or, or, or pistol, gun, whatever you want to call it, you need a copy of this case. Right? But the, the only significant prior Supreme Court decision on the meaning of the Second Amendment was in a 1939 case which had 
uh, been interpreted as saying that the Second Amendment gave no rights to private individuals, right? And it merely protected the right of, quote, well-regulated militias, okay? And so if you look at the Heller case, Heller concluded that this was not the correct reading of the 1939 case and that the amendment conferred the same right on private citizens, not just militias. So the right to keep at least some kind of weapon for self-defense and recreational purposes was what was needed. You understand? So uh, the D.C. statute, uh, the D.C. gun control statute was the issue in the Heller case. And it was among two or three of, of the strictest statutes in America at that time. So the statute contained two distinct prohibitions that were challenged. The first one okay, was that the statute effectively banned the possession of handguns in the home, right? So only registered firearms could be kept. Okay? And then handguns could not be registered at all. And the second was that the statute required that firearms, other than handguns, which meant like rifles, shotguns, shit like that, could only be kept in the home if they were kept unloaded and either uh, disassembled or disabled by a trigger lock. So if you remember last week, right, I talked about the National Firearms Act, right, kind of brought that up. Well, one of the things that some of these special laws that they created was that you couldn't have stuff like sawed-off shotguns. Okay. So the plaintiff, Dick Keller, was a police officer who, who wanted to keep a handgun in the house. So he asserted that each of the above two prohibitions violated his Second Amendment right to bear arms. Okay. So in a majority opinion, a five to four vote, the court agreed that both provisions of the D.C. statute violated the Second Amendment rights, right? So the majority opinion, um, and if you look at, I think his name is Justice Scalia, right? It's probably the most important opinion um, that that judge ever had, right? Because, you know, shit rolled downhill from there, you know, basically saying, look, you know, private citizens have a right, right? So four members um, of the majority Right, were those generally considered the conservative block of the court. So in addition to Scalia, they included Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas and Alito. Okay. So the critical fifth vote was supplied by Justice Kennedy, right? And it was um it was the case in uh Justice Rehnquist. If you look at Justice Rehnquist, right, and and, and Justice Roberts, right, they all had these what they call dissenting opinions. And if you go look at case law. You'll see a lot of this shit in case law. Right? So just, just take time and go look at case law. A lot of this shit's gonna come up with. Okay. Um, so when we look at this, right, it, it, the operative clause, as they call it, right, pointed to several elements that were demonstrated um, that the clause was intended to give rights to individuals, right, and not just to members of state militias. Right? So the first, the operative clause, codified a right of the people. And to use this phrase by other constitutional provisions, right, so the First Amendment's Assembly and Petition Clause, which demonstrated that the phrase customarily referred to individual rights, not collective ones. Okay? So he said that the second historical and linguistic analyst showed that the phrase 
to keep and bear arms was uh, unambiguously used to refer to the carrying of weapons outside of an organized militia. So I want you to think about this, right? If this type of shit applies to the Second Amendment, you know, when they say stuff like private individuals can have guns, then you have to look at the other amendments and you have to understand that those also apply to who? Private individuals. So, in summary, right, the judge said that the text and the history of the operative clause conferred an individual right for a man or a woman to keep and bear arms. Now, um, then there was what was known as the prefatory clause, right? Now, when we talk about the prefatory clause, just analyze the, the, the reference when they said a well-regulated militia. And they said that this was necessary to control the free state or to keep the security of a free state, right? So basically meaning the meaning of a well-regulated militia, right, rejected the, the dissent that the judge said that um, this was a term being limited officially to uh, organized state militias, right? Basically, your state military. And I said it before, every state has their own military. Right? A lot of people don't know this, right? Um, but the term militia referred to, quote, all males physically capable of acting in concert for the common defense. I need y'all to get that, right? Basically, why do you think one of the reasons that they make you do selective service? Your state has a selective service as well. Right? So the reference to security of a free state referred merely to a free country or a free polity. Not the states as the operators of state militias. So the preparatory clause was not inconsistent with Scalia's individual rights okay, interpretation. So I need y'all to get this right. And I'll say it again. The reference to a security of a free state referred merely to a free country or a free polity. Remember, all of these states are under the 14th Amendment. right? So even though, yeah, you can still use the state constitution, right? these states are technically not as free as they think they are. The people are more free than the actual state is in some instances. In a lot of instances. Alright. What up to the chat? What's going on, chat? Alright. Now, and a couple more things and then we're going to go to this audio, right? Um, Justice Scalia, right, at that point in time, he argued that uh, what they call post-enactment interpretations of the Second Amendment had reached the same conclusion, and this was that the amendment conferred an individual right to bear arms for self-defense. So, like, people who've been locked up, they get out. If you wasn't a violent offender, but you had a felony, right, you had a right to still own a weapon. Okay? So, if you go look at it, you should pay special attention to the U.S. Miller case. Um, it was U.S. versus Miller, 307, U.S. 174. This was in 1939, what I mentioned earlier. The Supreme Court, the principal prior case on the meaning of the Second Amendment, right? So, 
in this particular case, right, you had two criminal defendants that were charged with transporting unregistered short-barreled shotguns in violation of the federal statute and argued that their conduct was protected by the Second Amendment. So the Supreme Court rejected the argument saying that in the absence of any evidence uh, tending to show that the possession of a, of a shotgun at this time right, has some reasonable relationships to the preservation of the, the efficiency of a well-regulated militia. And basically, they said that we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear arms such as an instrument, right? So this is back in the 30s. So back in the 30s, they didn't want to acknowledge that it was a, a private right, right? So the question in this Heller case became, was this statement meant about private non-military possession of guns? Was it correct? Okay. So in the dissenting opinion, right, in the Heller case, it contended that in the Miller case, that the court had meant that only military uses of guns are protected by the amendment. But then the judge said that um, only the Second Amendment does not protect those weapons not typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, such as a short-barrel shotgun. So uh, Justice Scalia, right, in the Miller case, he said that it was not inconsistent with Heller. And that the conclusion was was that the amendment protects the right of law-abiding citizens or nationals to possess guns for self-defense if you was following the law. I'm telling you, man, listen, there is, and this way you have to be so careful when you do your nationality because y'all don't really understand the full ramifications of this. A lot of times people just jump into shit and don't really do their research. You can actually, believe it or not, if you're not careful, you can give up some of your rights. Even your right to do commerce. Okay? So, you have to be very, very careful because even the right to do commerce under the Commerce Clause, all of that's regulated. That's why the IRS steps in to some of that stuff. Okay? Now, um, they did the ban on handguns in D.C., right? And, uh, you know, they, they did what they call an absolute ban, handgun ban, right? And this asserted basically that the inherent right of self-defense was central to the Second Amendment right, okay? He said that D.C.'s complete ban on handgun possession in homes amounts to uh, the prohibition of an entire class of arms that is overwhelmingly chosen by American society for that lawful purpose, so since handguns were favored as a method of self-defense in the home, a complete ban on the handgun violated the amendment. You understand? But Scalia did not specify what precise standards should be used. Instead, he reserved the issue for future cases. Uh, this was a while back, right? So the, the whole choice, um, the standard choice, right? was basically unnecessary in this particular type of case. And they did what they call, um, and we've heard this before, is enumerated constitutional rights, right? So I would probably be able to take a, a good look at what all of your enumerated rights are. And as we as we continue our discussions over the next couple of weeks, um, next week we're going to go um, into the next amendment, right? So I need y'all to really get this, right? Because... 
Um, you know, a lot of brothers have issues. You know, when it comes down to 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 pistols and you know gun control and things like that. But next week we're going to go into the Third Amendment to the Constitution, which deals with the quartering of soldiers in private homes, right? Private property, things like that, right? And if you look at, you can go, you could even look at, um, you can go look at the Takings Clause, right? The Takings Clause deals with this as well. And we're talking about uh, private arms and things like that, right? The Takings Clause is really important because governments, we're talking about both state and federal, right, have the right to take private property for public use, provided that they give you some just compensation. Okay, and, and that's what they call eminent domain, right? So um, there are plenty of people who had property taken, such as firearms and um, anything else that you could probably think of, right? But they weren't giving just compensation, right? So it's like if you take somebody's rights away from them, you have to give them some type of just compensation for that. You can't just, you know, that's that's um, that's eminent domain. On On a human being Alright So We're talking about this tonight I mean this this is important stuff um, But for the sake of our time I'm going to play the audio So we can get to this But just remember right Ex post facto Right Is where the constitution prevents Both the federal And state governments From enacting ex post facto laws Right So ex post facto is a law which has a retroactive punitive effect. Okay? And this can happen in four different ways, right? And I want you to think about this when we're talking about this subject tonight and really anything else that these people try to use that is not constitutional. So the first thing would be that the law retroactively alters the definition of a crime so that an act that wasn't a crime at all um, at any point in time, right, when it was committed, is now defined as a crime. That's the first one. The second one is aggravation, right? So the law retroactively aggravates a crime, redefining it so as to make a greater offense than it was when it was committed, right? So by transforming what would have been manslaughter into murder, that type of thing. Number three, increased punishment, right? So the law increases the punishment for an act that was a crime when it was committed, okay? And four... The rules of evidence. The law alters the rule of evidence by allowing a conviction based on lesser evidence than what was required at the time it was committed. Okay? So the ban on ex post facto law applies only to measures which are criminal or penal. Okay? So I really need y'all to get that, right? Because then we then we go into stuff like bills of attainder. Okay. Um, you know, and whether that's rational or not, but you know, um, understanding ex post facto and understanding how it applies to the Second Amendment, right? But not even so much the Second Amendment, but let's say the National Firearms Act, right? All right, so we're gonna take a um, we're gonna take a moment. We'll play the rest of this clip, and then we'll come back and open up the call lines if y'all wanna holler at me. All right. Uh, but this is Second Amendment. This is, you know, this is downright what it is. So we're going to continue our conversation. We'll take a very short break, and then um, we'll get back to this audio. 
We'll be right back. See, I've been watching you for a while, smiling stuff, but I know I can be with you for the night, alright? Is that alright, baby, baby? Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on the bottom line with Joey L on Evolution Radio. All right, we're back. We're going to go ahead and get into the second part of this audio. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, if you're just now tuning in, this is the second part of our show uh, where we're going to go with the Second Amendment. Next week, we'll continue on into Third Amendment. Um, I actually skipped over last week. I probably should have done the First Amendment, but we've actually done a show on that already. 
right? So I'm going through each one just because we need to know these things. And um, we'll take these all the way up into the treaties. Um, I do have a, a webinar coming up soon on, gun, on the gun trust. So if you'd like to get on that, I'll have a link up for that soon. You can sign up for that. All right. All right so let's get into it. And uh, we're going to play this audio. All right. We'll be right back. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. For centuries, English and American law have imposed limits on carrying firearms in public in the interest of public safety. The history runs from the 14th century statute of Northampton, which prohibited carrying arms in fairs and markets and other public gathering places, to similar laws adopted by half of the American colonies and states in the founding period, to later state laws that relaxed restrictions for people who had a concrete need for armed self-defense. Starting as early as the early 1800s, states began taking different approaches to regulating firearm carrying in public. Some states provided that a person who carried firearms in public without reasonable cause could be arrested and required to post a bond. Other states made it a misdemeanor to carry a handgun without reasonable grounds to fear an attack. Other states and territories began banned carrying handguns in towns and cities altogether or restricted it to situations of immediate threat. And in the early 1900s, many states made good cause a requirement for a license to carry a concealed handgun, while also prohibiting, in some cases, the open carrying of handguns. In total, from the founding era through the 20th century, at least 20 states have at one time or another either prohibited all carrying of handguns in populous areas or limited it to those with good cause. New York's law fits well within that tradition of regulating public carry. It makes a carry license available to any person, not disqualified, who has a non-speculative reason to carry a handgun for (coughs) self-defense. New York is not an outlier in the extent to which the state restricts the ability to carry firearms in public, and it's not an outlier in asking a licensed applicant to show good cause for a carry license. Many ordinary people have received carry licenses in the United States. If the court has questions about how the law works in practice, it should remand for fact-finding, and if the court finds the history ambiguous, it should review the law under intermediate scrutiny and uphold it. Uh, General Underwood, you seem to rely a bit on the density of the uh, population. You say, I think, that states like New York have uh, high-density areas. Um, And the implicit in that is that um, the more rural an area is, the more unnecessary a strict rule is. So when when you suggest that, How rural does the area have to be before uh, your restrictions uh, shouldn't apply? Well, um, I I think the way the New York statute works is consistent with a reasonable rule, which is that there's not a cutoff, there's not a number at which things change, but that licenses, unrestricted licenses, are much more readily available in more in in less densely populated upstate counties than they are in uh, dense metropolitan areas. And that is 
a virtue of the system of having licenses handled by licensing officers who are part of the local community. Three other um, states and already states, enjoy. Uh, and those states include some of the most populous in cities in well the country. Those states, states, like New York, well, limit those firearms in sensitive places, but do not prohibit carrying for self-defense in any location where you're cut typically off, open to uh, the general so. public. I'm happy to continue uh, by point. Uh, Mr. Clement, uh, I'm saying to talk about Manhattan or NYU's campus. It's another to talk about uh, rural upstate New York. He actually lives in what I would call an intermediate area. He lives in Rensselaer County, which is not that far from Albany, and it contains the city of Troy and a university and um, a downtown shopping district, but it also contains uh, substantial rural areas. And that is precisely what the licensing officer here was taking into account when he made the differentiation between you know, don't take it to the shopping mall. Don't take it downtown, but but you can take it in the in the sort of backcountry areas. Thank you, General. You, you mentioned that the, the gun is, I, I guess, permits are more readily available in the less populated area. Uh, unrestricted permits. Unrestricted permits are, are more readily available in less populated areas. Yeah. Heller relied on the right to defense. Uh, uh, as a basis for its reading of the of the Second Amendment, or that was its reading. Now, I would think that arises in more populated areas. If you're out in the woods, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to run into someone who's going to rob you on the street. Uh, on the other hand, there are uh, places in a, in a densely populated city where it's more likely that that's where you're going to need a gun for self-defense. And, uh, you know, however many... Uh, 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 policemen are assigned uh, that, you know, there are high crime areas. And it seems to me that what you're saying is that's probably the last place that someone's going to get a permit to carry a gun. How is that, regardless of what we think of the policy, that how is that consistent with Heller's reasoning that the reason the Second Amendment applies a, a direct personal right is for self-defense? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. One, we, if you go right to history and tradition, the history was to um, regulate most strenuously in densely populated places. That's what fairs and markets are. So we have history. But we also have a rationale for that history, which is that where there is dense population, there is also the deterrent of lots of people, and there is the availability of law enforcement. In, in England, the idea was that it was the king's peace, and it was, in fact, an insult to the king for people to take things into their own hands. Well, but that's not always true. Uh, it depends, obviously, in the uh, jurisdiction and all that, but simply because a place is, well, it's paradoxical that you say a place is a high-crime area, but don't worry about it because there are a lot of police around well, and the other thing is that this is that these regulations are all an effort to accommodate the right to, to recognize and, and respect the right of self-defense while regulating it to protect um, the public safety. And in areas where people are packed densely together, as the questioning that just happened um, displays, um, the risks of harm from people who are packed shoulder to shoulder 
all having guns are much more acute than they are. Oh, sure, and I can understand, for example, a regulation that says you can't carry a gun into, you know, giant stadium uh, just because a lot of things are going on there for people to have guns. On the other hand, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow people to protect themselves, that's implicated when you're in a high crime area. It's not implicated when you're out in the woods. Well, I... um uh, I think it is implicated when you're out in the woods. It's just a different set of problems. I mean, they're, you're deserted there, and you can't, and law enforcement is not available to come to your aid if something does happen. But, well, how many muggings take place in the forest? Um, if we, if we, uh, how many do you think? <laughs> I don't know, but um, I will tell you that our licensing officer told us that rapes and, and uh, robberies happen on the deserted bike paths, and that he has some concern about that. So, I mean, um, I take your point that there is a different risk in the city, but there is also a different public safety consideration. And that is why the licensing officer is meant to take into account not just the risk, but also the, uh, the population and the availability of law enforcement and all these considerations. I, I won't say that the risk, I think it's not correct to characterize the risk as atypical. The risk has to be specific to the person. That what, what the cases say is um, that you can't just say, I'm afraid, because based on facts that are not specific to you. Um, but what Mr. Nash did was convince the licensing officer that his trip to a deserted parking lot every night was sufficient. What if it's, uh, what if it's one of these, um, uh, you know, crime places, whether it's, um, uh, you know, a, a celebrated uh, spate of murders carried out by a particular person. I don't know who that is, you know, son of Sam or somebody else. Is that a good reason to, um, is that, is that a atypical reason? Is that a justification? Some random person is going around shooting people. I'd like to have a firearm, even though I didn't feel the need for one before? Um, well, I think that uh, it would have to be brought home to you in particular, to your route, to your parking lot, to your, um, you know, your apartment building, but uh, so something specific to you rather than it's happening in the world at large. Um, so uh, I don't that's, that. that's what's meant by something non-speculative. Could I, could I explore what that means uh, for ordinary law-abiding citizens who feel they need to carry a firearm for self-defense. So I want you to think about people like this, uh, people who work late at night in Manhattan. It might be somebody who cleans offices, might be a doorman at an apartment, might be a nurse or an orderly, might be somebody who washes dishes. None of these people has criminal records. They're all law-abiding citizens. They get off work around midnight, maybe even after midnight, they have to commute home by subway, maybe by bus. When they arrive at the subway station or the bus stop, they have to walk some distance through a high crime area and they apply for a license and they say, look, nobody has, told, has said, I'm going to mug you next Thursday. However, there have been a lot of muggings in this area and I am scared to death. They do not get licenses, is that right? That is, in general, right, yes. If there's nothing particular to them, that's right. How is that consistent with the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? 
because the core right to self-defense doesn't, as as this court said, doesn't allow for all to, to be armed for all possible confrontations in all places. No, it doesn't. But it, it doesn't mean that there is the right to self-defense for celebrities and state judges and retired police officers, but pretty much not for the kind of ordinary people who have a real felt need to carry a gun to protect themselves. Well, if that ordinary per Mr. Nash had a, a, a concern about his parking lot and he got a permit, I think the extra problem in Manhattan is that you, your hypothetical quite appropriately entailed the subways, entailed pr public transit, and there are lots of people on the subways even at midnight, as I can say from personal experience, and the particular specter of a lot of armed people in an enclosed space. Um, there, are, there are a lot of armed people uh, on the streets of New York and in the subways late at night right now, aren't there? I don't know that there are a lot of armed people. No. I How many, there, yeah. How many people with illegal guns? Yeah, that's what I'm right. talking about. Yeah. How many yeah. illegal guns were seized by the, by the New York Police Department uh, last year? Do you, have, do you have any idea? I don't have that number, but I'm sure there's a, there's a substantial number. But the people, all, all these people with illegal guns, they're on the subway, they're walking know. around the streets, but the ordinary, hardworking, law-abiding people I mentioned, no, they can't be armed. Well, I think the subways, are, when there are problems on the subways, are protected by the, the, the transit police, is what happens, because the idea of proliferating arms on the subway is precisely, I think, what terrifies a great many people. Um, the other point is that proliferating guns in a populated area where there is law enforcement jeopardizes law enforcement, because when they come, they now can't tell who's shooting, and the, sh the, the, the shooting uh, uh, proliferates and uh, accelerates, and in the end, that's why there's a substantial law enforcement interest in um, not having widespread carrying of guns. On the standard of particular to them, like, just to follow up on the other questions, why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and um, I want to be able to defend myself? Well, what happens in these license hearings is that a question is asked, what, what exactly do you mean? Because um, it's... Well, the statistics... It depends on how large an area you describe. You could say, I live in a violent area, and that could be all of New York City, and or it could be your particular neighborhood. And the closer it gets to your particular neighborhood, the better your the, the better your claim is, or your block. Now, I know that um, that uh, uh, one of the petitioners made a, a, an assertion about robberies on his block. I also know that there was a hearing about that, and he evidently did not convince the licensing officer that they were sufficiently recent or relevant or couldn't be dealt with adequately by his own premises license, which he would be entitled to have without any, any uh, um, justification or proper cause at all. So what I know happens is that those claims are examined by a licensing officer. Now, this gets to your to questions about discretion and whether that's effectively handled, but... Um, well, well, that's we, the real concern, isn't it, with any constitutional right? If it's the discretion of an individual officer, that seems inconsistent with an objective 
constitutional right. I mean, what if you're a runner? You say, I run a lot. Uh, and as you correctly pointed out earlier, there are a lot of serious violent crimes on running paths. It's a real problem. Um, is well, that good enough? Probably. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the and counterpart to Nash's, uh, uh, Nash's claim. But probably, if that's though. the question, yeah. it, it, that, that is not the way this case was tried. That's not the way this claim was framed. And if the question is, does the system actually operate in the way that we're describing, then this case should be remanded for a hearing to determine whether it does. Um, and what's the problem with the shall issue regimes from your perspective that exist in many other states, including very populous states, Florida, Illinois? The problem with the shall issue regimes is that they multiply the number of, uh, of firearms that are being carried in very densely populated places. And there is a much higher risk with, without assuming any ill intent on the part of the carriers of weapons. They, they greatly proliferate the likelihood that mistakes will be made, fights will break out. But if that happened in those states, I mean, can you make a comparative judgment? Because it seems like before you impose more restrictions on individual citizens and infringe their constitutional rights based on this theory, you should have to show, well, in those other states that have shall issue regimes, actually there is a lot more accidents, crime, uh, and I don't see any real evidence of that. Yeah, I think the, um, there is a brief from the uh, um, social scientist that addresses this, but this law has been in place since 19, for over 100 years, um, starting when the, at, at a time when the, when the law was um, not as well understood in this area as, as, as it is now. And so um, uh, it's a little bit anachronistic to talk about before you put this law in place, you should have evidence. But I, I believe there is evidence about the success that New York has had in keeping, in, in, uh, that is, in keeping gun violence down that is attributable to the um, reduced number of guns that are being carried, in, particularly in these densely populated places. General, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this area uh, is that on the one hand, it, it seems completely intuitive to me, and I think to many people. Uh, I mean, if you think about Justice Thomas's questions about less populated areas, the rural areas of New York versus the cities, I mean, it seems completely intuitive that there should be different gun regimes or, uh, in New York than in Wyoming, or that there should be com different gun regimes in New York City than in rural counties upstate. But it's a, it's, it's a hard thing to, to match with our notion of constitutional rights generally. I mean, Mr. Clement makes a big point of this in his brief about how we would never really dream of doing that for the First Amendment or other um, uh, constitutional rights, allow that level of local flexibility that you are basically saying we should allow in this context. So I guess I just want to hear you say why you think that is. What, you know, what justification is there for allowing greater flexibility here? Well, um, I think one point is that um, there is a very wide range of um, 
sort of distribution of rural and urban and different kinds of areas, not just across the whole state, but within counties. And so delegating the decision-making with appropriate criteria to somebody who is local, which is what this is, these are local um, judges, in most of the state, they're, they're judges, um, to make the relevant fact findings, to make the relevant inquiry. This is, a, this is an interactive process in which these individuals and others are told, I'm not going to lift the restrictions now, but if you come back, if you have more to, to say about this, you know, feel free to come back. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's one reason why there isn't so much appellate litigation is that, it, is, is that that is what happens. Um, so it's hard to see how you could specify everything in advance and have it be a clear on-off switch and still take adequate account of, on the one hand, the need for self-defense and on the other hand, the strong public safety concerns. And that's why I think this system... I don't think that was Justice Kagan's question. Oh, I'm sorry. It was on a broader level, I believe. She can correct me if I'm wrong. The issue is no other constitutional right do we condition on permitting different jurisdictions to pass different regulations. Um, or, but do we have any other constitutional right whose exercise in history has been as varied as gun possession and use? Well, I think that's, that's right, both at the level, the local level and at the, at the state to state level. We have a, a strong history here um, of a range of responses from state to state that is um, based on local con conditions and local concerns. And what we have within New York is an effort to recognize we have the same, almost the same range of different kinds of spaces within the state, and this is the effort to accommodate that. And if the history warrants taking local conditions and local population density and so forth into account, it's hard to think of a, another way to, to effectively do that. There is, after all, appellate review available here, um, all the way to the central, you know, the, to the highest state court. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Dr. Thomas, anything further? But there are, let's just take, for example, uh, honey. That's something I think we can agree on. Uh, you can't hunt, in, I'm sure, with a, a gun in Central Park. But I'm certain that there are places in upstate New York or even in western New York where you can. I, I don't Including Rensselaer County, yes. Yeah. So I think what we're asking is if that you can have that difference for the purpose of hunting specifically, why can't you have a similar tailored approach for uh, Second Amendment uh, based upon if it's density in New York City, if that's a problem, subway, then you have a different set of concerns in upstate New York. Well, hunting permits work for particular locations, for particular areas, um, and um, it, but it's all one statewide regime. I mean, it, uh, and so to here, um, licenses are handled locally. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same model that licensing um, of of, um, of uh, handguns to carry a handgun for self-defense 
um, is handled locally under a single set of criteria, but with reference to local conditions. Um, I think that's... Mrs. Breyer? Oh, are we considering here just the uh, uh, upper state New York law? We're not considering New York City, are we? I don't see any reason to be considering New York City. Okay, so it's not in the Petitioners are not from they're, they're not. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, uh, if you're trying to get uniformity, uh, uh, doesn't the First Amendment, isn't it filled with uh, uh, local statutes? Use the word may, parade permits, uh, event permits. So yes. it's not special. Okay, okay. Can you Correct. Think in, a, in, a, in, in the areas where permitting happens, which includes First Amendment areas, it could be parades, it could be solicitation for charity. There are various areas where uh, First Amendment activity is. So, so my, my, what I'm driving towards, and I, and I thought also there is a brief here, I think it's the social scientist, remember the name of it, uh, which says in instances where, and they do it statistically, uh, they are more liberal in allowing uh, people to carry concealed weapons. Uh, who are good character people, uh, and there is a greater risk of, of uh, uh, a crime or harm, uh, where that happens, uh, there are more deaths of innocent people. What is that brief? I'd like to go back and look at the figures. Yeah, I believe you know? it is a, a, a brief of social scientists. But All right, I'll find it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, do you think it's useful to uh, where we'd have a trial? Could we go into that? I mean, I think the, the great problem would be fine. Let's have some absolute uh, the rules, rules, uniform national rules. I'm not sure we have those in the First Amendment, but assume we do. What are they? What are those rules? Well, I think they would end up being factors that have to be taken into account because the range of situations is so different, both on the on the need side, on the on the and on the uh, on the on the counter on the public safety side. So I think it's very hard. In fact, that's one of the things that I think is hard about the suggestion that a sensitive place regime could replace a system like this. Sorry, if you had a guess on how many uh, carry concealed carry. Uh, licenses are given in the area under consideration upstate New York or outside of New York City uh, in a given year or around, any way you want to put it. Uh, are they in the tens of thousands? Are well, they in in, I, no, I, I can't do it statewide. I have statewide estimates, yeah. not estimates. I have permits I, I, for Rensselaer County and for statewide. It would be possible to get more, but we don't, I don't. Have are they, are they rough? So, so and this is in footnote uh, uh, 10 of our brief. In the two-year period 2018 to 2019, um, in, uh, in uh, the state, there were approximately 37,800 grants. Okay, I get of the idea, idea. And if, in fact, it were remanded, uh, I guess we could go into that in more depth. That's correct. That's correct. We have the grants. Of course, there are licenses that weren't granted in those years that are still valid. So that doesn't tell you how many, how many licenses there are out there altogether. Um, the thing we had to estimate was the grant rate because we don't have application data. We had to, we had to estimate that from other information. But we have the permits. Justice Alito, uh, is it correct that the non-speculative standard applies? throughout the state. It applies yeah. equally in New York City and in the most rural location in upstate New York. Well, it has been um, 
inter the law has been interpreted to mean that although the experience of granting licenses or the experience with license applications is that it is apparently more readily satisfied upstate. So that the individual officers have a degree of discretion. Well, yes, they are asked, like, like judges on many issues, they are asked to take into account certain factors. They can be reversed if they took the wrong factors into account or if they failed to take the specified factors into account. Um, it's not unguided discretion, but it is discretion in the what, sense that... What, what guarantees, if any, are there in your regime that a licensing officer is not taking into account improper factors? I mean, this is a question about the judicial system generally. Uh, correctly records the factors that he took into account. They, they write letters or opinions, um, which may or may not fully disclose, one assumes will disclose what they thought was important. Um, when there's a, there, there's a, um, often a, they're not just the papers, but there are the, um, if, if he denies a license, he will say why, he has to say why. Um, We've been presented in case with an enormous amount of history, citations to all sorts of statutes and uh, other sources. Uh, would you be willing to concede that maybe you got a little bit overly enthusiastic in your summary of some of the historical sources that you cited in your brief? I'm going to give we you did an, our best I'm to be accurate you, uh, in reporting my, what we reported. I don't know what you have in mind. Yeah, well, I'm going to give you an example, uh, which is, you know, it's troubling. I can see how it would slip through. I'm not uh, accusing you personally of anything. But on page 23, you say that uh, in founding era America, legal reference guides advise local officials to, quote, arrest all such persons as in your sight shall ride or go armed. And this is a citation to John Haywood, a manual of the laws of North Carolina, 1814. So I looked at this manual, and what it actually says is, you shall arrest all such persons as in your sight shall ride or go armed offensively. And somehow that word, offensively, got dropped well, from I their brief. I would think that's an irrelevant word. Um, I think it would have been better to put it in and make an explanation, but I do think it's an irrelevant word because we have uh, substantial authority for the proposition that guns were deemed to be offensive weapons. And that's why we have this dispute about whether saying, I mean, there are different ways of putting it, offensively or with offensive weapons or to the terror of the people. These either describe a separate characterization, a, a separate feature that not all weapons have. That's my friend's position on this. Or they describe the belief that all such weapons are offensive. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, but of course, if any possession of weapons outside the home was illegal, then there would be no need to put in the term offensively, the inclusion of that. Well, term. there are many other weapons. Usually the, the, there's a list that's um, uh, it's not in this particular instruction, but there will be a list of weapons. They were talking about much more than guns, and it was guns that were said 
over and over again to be offensive. All right, well, thank you. But that's the explanation I'm... Justice Sotomayor? Justice Kagan? Uh, you started a thought and then you were taken off someplace else, so I just wanted to allow you to finish the thought. You, the, 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 uh, what you said was um, that there was a reason why the sensitive, a sensitive place regime cannot serve as a replacement, and then you were not given an opportunity to say why, so why? Well, essentially because there are, it, 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 is, it would be very hard in the first instance, and I think also not very acceptable in the sec to, to my adversaries on the, in the second instance to specify in advance all the places um, that uh, ought properly to be understood as sensitive. So it sounds like a very convenient alternative. But for example, we were talking about Times Square um, on New Year's Eve. Times Square on when the theater district, when, when, when uh, commerce is in full swing, Times Square almost every night is shoulder to shoulder people. So then you you end up um, having a, a very big difficulty in specifying what all the places are that have the characteristics that should make them sensitive. It's, it, it's, it has, um, it, in principle, it has an attractive quality to it, but in implementation, I think it would be unsuccessful. Uh, Justice Gorsuch? No further questions, thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? No, thank you. Mrs. Barrett. I have one. General Underwood, do you think Heller was rightly decided? I think there is a lot of support historically and otherwise for it, so I'm, I'm quite content to treat it as rightly decided. I think there was an argument on the other side too, but that's true about many of, maybe most of the difficult questions that come before this court. I have no quarrel with Hill. Do you think that we are bound by the way that we characterize history in that opinion. You know, um, Mr. Clement has pointed out that in some respects, the way that we treated, say, the statute of Northampton and, and is different from the way that you argue um, that we should interpret that and the follow-on, you know, statutes in the colonies. Um, you uh, argue that we should understand those in some other cases differently than we did in Heller. Are we free to do that? I think you are because I think the Heller decision made very clear that it was not deciding anything other than the right to keep arms in the home. In the course of arriving at that decision, it necessarily said a lot of other things that led to that decision, but I don't think they are controlling or they, I think the opinion itself says we're not trying to do a full exegesis of the whole Second Amendment right, and there's more to be there's more to be done. And it would be odd and really inconsistent with general practice to treat every every sentence or every reference to a historical source as controlling for all time, as distinguished from for the purposes for which it was invoked. Thank you, General. Thank you, General. Mr. Fletcher. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with the Second Amendment because it is firmly grounded in our nation's history and tradition of gun regulation. 
As Justice Alito said, there's a lot of history floating around this morning, and so I want to be clear that when I say that, I am putting to the side all of the disputed bits about the statute of Northampton, about the surety laws, and I'm putting to the side laws that restricted concealed carry but did not restrict open carry. And I am focusing on laws that either prohibited or required a showing of good cause to carry a concealable weapon like a pistol. Tennessee enacted one of those laws in 1821. Texas followed in 1871. New Mexico and Arkansas likewise enacted such laws in the years immediately after the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And over the decades that followed, more than a dozen other states enacted other laws that were at least as restrictive as New York's. Like my friends from New York, I count about 20 laws in total that fit that description. Those laws remain in force in seven states today, and more than 80 million Americans live under their protection. They are, in short, both traditional and common regulations. I'd welcome the court's questions, or I'm happy to continue. Uh, how do we determine which states we should look to? I mean, these are, I mean you, you, you focus a lot on Western states, but the West is different. I agree, Justice Thomas, and I think there might be reason to be skeptical about a tradition that's only reflected in one state. I think that's a problem for Mr. Clement in relying on some of the cases exclusively from the antebellum South. But the cases that we're relying on come from the South, like the Tennessee, Arkansas, and Texas law I described. West Virginia had a similar law, as did Alabama, New York, Massachusetts, California, Hawaii. The tradition that I am drawing on spans two centuries, going back to the Tennessee law, spans 150 years when you broaden it out to many states and spans all regions or virtually all regions of the country. So I think that's the sort of tradition that you can look to when defining a national tradition of gun regulation. But I mean, what is the appropriate analysis? I mean, you sort of, we, we I think generally don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, the first thing I would look to in answering this question is not the statue of Northampton, it's Heller. And Heller has gone through all this stuff. And uh, obviously, in a somewhat different context, although that's part of the debate, self-defense at home, uh, you know, this is different. But I still think uh, that you have to begin with, with Heller and its recognition that the Second Amendment, you know, it, it has its own uh, uh, limitations, but it is to be interpreted the same way you'd interpret other provisions uh, of the Constitution. And I wonder what your best answer is to the point that, Mr. Clement makes in his brief, which is that, for example, if you're asserting a claim to confront the witnesses against you under the Constitution, you don't have to say, I've got a special reason. This is why I think it's important to my, uh, my defense. The Constitution gives you that right, and if someone's going to take it away from you, they have to justify it. You don't have to say when you're looking for a permit uh, to speak on a street corner or whatever that you know, your speech is particularly important. So why do you have to show, in this case, convince somebody that you're entitled to exercise your Second Amendment right? So let me start with the general question and then get to that specific point from Mr. Clement. As to the general question about Heller, we agree completely that the court ought to apply the method from Heller, which we, like I think all the parties, take to be look to the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment right. And we're applying that now to a somewhat different issue with the benefit of somewhat broader materials. Now, as to the question about why do you have to have a showing of need, I think the problem with Mr. Clement's formulation is that it assumes the conclusion. If you had a right 
the, the Second Amendment conferred a right to carry around a weapon for possible self-defense just because an individual wants to have one available, then obviously you couldn't take away that right or make it contingent upon a discretionary determination. But the whole question is whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms confers that right to have a pistol with you for self-defense, even after the showing of demonstrated... I'm not sure that's right. I mean, you would, um, regardless of what the right is, uh, it would be surprising to have it depend upon a permit system. You can say that the right is limited in a particular way, just as First Amendment rights are limited, um, um, but the idea that you need a license to exercise um, the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights. So I, I agree with that, but I think I heard even Mr. Clement in response to a question from Justice Kavanaugh say he doesn't have a quarrel with licensing regimes in general. And I think what that is one illustration of is that the Second Amendment has a distinct history and tradition, and that the way to be faithful to the Second Amendment is to be faithful to that history and tradition and not to draw analogies to other rights with, the, with their own histories and traditions. Well, there's licensing and there's licensing. Maybe it's one thing to say we need to check, make sure we don't have a criminal record, make sure that all the, all the other things you can check on, but not that we assume you don't have a right to exercise uh, your, your – so I guess hard to say it without saying it – exercise your right under the Second uh, uh, Amendment, and you've got to show us that, that you do. So we would ask that question by looking to the history and tradition of the Second Amendment. And in Tennessee in 1821, you couldn't carry a pistol at all. In Texas in 1871, you had to have a showing of need if you were going to carry a pistol. And that showing of need was actually much less favorable than the New York regime. In Texas, in West Virginia, and in Alabama, and those laws that we cite, need to carry a firearm was a need that you had to show when you were prosecuted for violating the law. It was essentially a self-defense requirement, and you had to persuade a jury in a criminal trial that you had an immediate pressing need to be carrying the gun when you were carrying it. The laws of which New York's is one, but by no means the only example that began to become more prevalent in the 20th century, said, we're going to make that determination of need ex ante. We're going to require a showing of good cause. New York has done that for a century. I'm sorry, Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, this might be a level of generality issue, but I think Mr. Clement responded to what some of what you're saying on history and tradition by saying you have to look at carry laws more generally. <clears throat> And there was open carry traditions in a lot of those states. Uh, and so that I think he followed up by saying, so open carry is one option, shall carry uh, permit regimes for concealed carry, another option. But what you can't have is no open carry and simply a may issue discretionary regime that will, in practice, he says, limit the rights. So can you respond to that? Yeah, I meant to be taking that into account in the history, account of history that I'm giving you. So the Tennessee law refers specifically to carry publicly or privately. Texas, the same story. If I were here defending a regime that just prohibited concealed carry and allowed open carry, I would have many, many, many more states. Uh, but I'm focused on just this type of law, and even there, our submission is there's a substantial history and tradition of that kind of regulation. It's not the sort of outlier that the court confronted in Heller and McDonald's. And if I, I could speak to, Mr. Clement has spoken some about the case law from the 19th century and has suggested that laws like these were struck down. And with all respect to my friend, that's not correct. The cases that he is relying on are primarily dicta. The two cases he has that actually struck down laws, or I'm sorry, the three cases that he has that actually struck down laws are the Nunn decision from Georgia, which struck down a law that was banned even the keeping of pistols. The court did say in dicta that 
open carry was required, but that was, that was the, whole, the law was actually much more restrictive than that. The Andrews case that he relies on and that Heller relies on as well is actually more helpful to us because the court upheld a prohibition on the carrying of belt or pocket pistols. And it prohibited a ban on revolvers only because the court construed that ban to be so broad that it would prohibit even carrying it around your house. And in the very next sentence, the court said, but of course the legislature, if it wanted to, could regulate the carrying of that firearm publicly. And then when you turn to laws like the ones that we have here, which include some sort of self-defense exception, either ex-ante or ex-post, the trend in the cases is in favor of, of upholding their constitutionality. We've cited about six decisions from the 1800s and the early 1900s, including the Duke and English cases from Texas, the Isaiah case from Alabama, the Haley and Fife cases from Arkansas, and the Workman case from West Virginia, all of which upheld those laws. And Mr. Clement's answer to those decisions is that they rested on the erroneous understanding that the Second Amendment or its state equivalents protected only the right to use arms in the militia. But that is not what those cases say. They do not stop by saying that the defendants were not militiamen and so had no rights. The Texas cases in particular in Duke and English say that the law makes all necessary allowances for self-defense by including the type of, of exception we described earlier. So our submission is that that body of case law that New York law carries forward uh, is part of our nation's history and tradition of firearms regulation and that New York ought to be allowed to continue to make the choice that it has made. And we understand, and there's force to Mr. Clement's argument, that other states have made other choices. Justice Alito made powerful points about how some individuals have a powerful claim to have a gun for self-defense. But the question before the court is, of all of the different approaches to these difficult issues that states and other jurisdictions have taken over our nation's history, is this one that the Second Amendment takes off the table? And our submission is that when it's an option that New York has, and other states have had for a century or more, and that traces as far back as some of the laws that I've been discussing into our nation's history, that's an option that is consistent with our tradition of gun regulation and is an option that ought to be available to the states. Justice Thomas, Justice Breyer, Justice Alito. Uh, is it correct that the Sullivan Law was an innovation when it was adopted? It was relatively new. I think the Sullivan Law was 1911. The licensing requirement at issue here was 1913. I think Massachusetts had done something similar in 1906. Hawaii did its as well in 1913. And we view those as lineal descendants and, in fact, improvements upon the sort of Texas laws, which made you prove self-defense at the back end rather than giving you a chance to demonstrate it up front. There's a, there's a debate about the, um, the impetus for the enactment of the Sullivan Law. Is there not? There's, there are those who argue, and they cite they cite support for this interpretation that uh, a major reason for the enactment of the Sullivan Law was the belief that certain disfavored groups, members of labor unions, blacks and Italians, were carrying guns and they were dangerous people and they wanted them disarmed. There have been those arguments made, and there's certainly evidence that those sentiments existed in New York at the time. I have not seen things that persuade me that those were the impetus for the Sullivan Law, and to the extent that that was a question, I think the fact that similar laws have been enacted and maintained, not just in New York and not just at that moment in time, but in a number of different states throughout the country, throughout large swaths of our nation's history, is, is a good reason to believe that this is not just prejudice, that this is a legitimate regulation. Um, I think one more question about uh, the major point that you've made this morning, which is that uh, there are uh, scattered statutes 
local ordinances, judicial decisions from various points in the 19th century, extending into the 20th century, the early 20th century with the Sullivan Law and the other laws that you mentioned that are inconsistent with Mr. Clement's argument. But what does that show about the original understanding of the right that's protected by the Second Amendment? Would, would we be receptive to arguments like that if we were interpreting, let's say, the First Amendment or the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment? Would we say, well, you know, you can find a lot of uh, state laws and state court decisions from the late, from the 19th century, early 20th century that are inconsistent with uh, a claim that is made based on the original meaning of, of, of a provision of the Bill of Rights, and that shows that's what that was understood to mean at the time. Well, Justice Alito, I think Heller was receptive to those types of arguments and conducted a review of history through the 20th century, and rightly so, I think. It's not unusual to look to the nation's tradition to understand the meaning of constitutional rights. I think that's especially appropriate here for a couple of reasons. One is that I think everyone agrees that the right codified in the Second Amendment is a right that is subject to some reasonable regulations, and in deciding what regulations are reasonable, we think the fact that they've been prevalent throughout our history is a good sign that they are. We think especially so because of a point that this court made in McDonald's, which is that throughout the nation's history, this is a right that's been recognized and codified in state constitutions as well. It's not something that people were not aware of. And so the fact that this type of regulation coexisted for so long with that understanding, we think is a particularly strong indication of its consensus. Well, Heller, and, and I'll stop after this, Heller cited uh, decisions going into the 19th century as confirmation of what it had already concluded based on text and history at or before the time of the adoption of the Second Amendment. So this is what it was understood to mean at the time. And it's further evidence that this is what this right was understood to mean because it kept being reaffirmed by decisions that came after. But I find it hard to understand how later decisions and statutes, particularly when you start to get into the late 19th century and the early 20th century, can be used as a substitute for evidence about what the right was understood to mean in 1791 or 1868, if you think that's the relevant date. So you're certainly right about the way that Heller looked to decisions to on its core holding of does the Second Amendment protect only a militia-focused right or an individual right. But when Heller turned to the question presented here, which is what sorts of regulations are consistent with the right that it was recognizing, I think it's fairly right to extend the analysis into the 20th century for the reason that Justice Kagan identified, that it validated as presumptively lawful selling and possession requirements, bans on the possession of firearms by the mentally ill that date to much later than the 19th century. Justice Sotomayor? What do you do with Heller and its recognition of categories of exclusion, mentally ill, felons, um, uh, domestic violence, presumably, although it didn't mention it. Can any of those ever pass scrutiny on their face? I don't know. I think what have the lesson from Heller, though, is that you don't need to apply strict scrutiny or any other level of scrutiny because those are the types of regulations that are validated by our nation's history and tradition of gun regulations. And so we would take that lesson from Heller as exemplifying the proper mode of analysis and apply it here as well. So what do you do with the view, your uh, Mr. Clement's view, that the essence that Heller says is that you do have some sort of right outside of the home, 
to guns for self-defense. So how do you finish what you think that right is, or how do you describe it? So we don't quarrel at all with the notion that the Second Amendment has something to say outside the home. Our submission is just that to understand how it applies outside the home, one has to look to the history and tradition of regulations. And what we've tried to argue in our brief and this morning is that there is a substantial history and tradition of the regulation of the public carrying of concealable weapons, including pistols, because of the dangers that they present. And that regulations of that type, of which New York's is one, are consistent with the right recognized in the How about, let's go to the extreme. There's no exception for a good cause. Uh, there's no exception for long, no exceptions whatsoever. No rifles for hunting, no nothing. Outside the home, you can't possess any kind of uh, ammunition-driven weapon. Yeah. Where would we be with that? I think that is an, uh, a type of regulation that fortunately no state has today and that I don't think there's any historical precedent for. I don't think you could make this sort of argument. So, that so give me the limiting principle of what regulations and how far they can go that don't achieve that. Right. So I think, like Mr. Clement, it, it's going to be difficult for me to give you definitive answers because, in our view, this is an inquiry that has to be driven by history and tradition, and that requires a careful examination of history and tradition. But let me give you a couple of guideposts. I think there is a, a tradition of laws like the Tennessee laws I alluded to earlier and others that prohibit the carrying of concealable weapons without any exception for self-defense or, or any good cause exception like the one that you have in the New York law. Uh, so we think, and Judge Bybee for the Enbach Ninth Circuit concluded after a, an exhaustive historical analysis that those types of regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment. Uh, but I acknowledge that that's a tougher historical case to make than the case that you can make with respect to laws like New York's that include self-defense exceptions. Thank you. Justice Kagan? Uh, Mr. Fletcher, I, I think I probably should have asked General Underwood this question, but I forgot, so here you are. And the United States also has law enforcement officers, even though they operate differently from sort of the cop on the beat. Um, but I'm just wondering if there is anything that you can say, any evidence that you can share, are there studies, is there information about how this actually affects how uh, getting rid of, of this regime in the way that Mr. Clement would want this court to do, how it affects policing, how it affects uh, the ability of police officers to keep the streets safe, and, and how it affects their own safety. Is there information about that? Is there, are there studies? There are. I think the best place I can point you to for studies are some of the amicus briefs, including the social scientist brief that Justice Breyer discussed with my colleague, General Underwood. Um, in terms of sort of the United States' perspective specifically, I don't have any sort of quantifiable statistics. What I can tell you is that we do share the concern behind the New York law, which is the concern that having more guns on the street does, ask, does complicate and increase the danger inherent in citizen law enforcement encounters. We do think that's a real concern, and it's one of a number of real concerns that are reflected in the law in New York. I mean, do police officers stop people in the same way in uh, notwithstanding what uh, whether there are uh, whether it's a, a New York regime or or uh, a more permissive regime. I, you know, I apologize. I don't have studies on that. All that I can give you is my own 
sense that if I were a police officer, I would certainly think prominently in my mind about what are the odds that the person that I'm stopping or approaching in the middle of the highway, you know, late at night is likely to be armed. And the licensing regime in the state is going to be an important factor in the risk that that's the situation. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch. Um, Mr. Fletcher, in, in your brief, um, you, you um, suggest that the New York law uh, passes both the history, text and history approach and that intermediate scrutiny, should we apply that? And I, I guess I'd like to pose the same question um, to you that I did to Mr. Clement. And that is, what, what is the appropriate test between those two or others? The lower courts seem <clears throat> very divided over how to approach Second Amendment questions. Some apply the text and history approach to the challenge before them. Others say, yes, text and history is appropriate, but we're not going to extend the valor right until unless the court first does so uh, through its own text and history analysis. We're not going to do it ourselves. Others have applied intermediate scrutiny. Others have applied what might be described as a watered-down version of intermediate scrutiny. And some have suggested strict scrutiny or some modification of it should apply. I'd, I'd just be grateful for your thoughts. I appreciate the question, Justice Gorsuch, and I think our view is that courts ought to follow what we understand to be the lesson from Heller, which is that you start with text, history, and tradition, and when those sources provide you an answer one way or the other, either that the law is valid or that it's invalid, you end there, and that's the end of the inquiry. Uh, we take that approach to be consistent with the approach described by Justice Kavanaugh in his dissent uh, in Heller too. Uh, I think the one place where we might differ from him a little bit is that uh, we think there may come a point, especially as when courts confront new regulations where history gives out, where it's not possible to draw those historical analogies anymore. And at that point, our suggestion is that the way to be faithful to history and tradition is to look to the broader method that you find in that history and tradition and the method that we find in a half dozen or so cases from the mid-1800s that we cite is to ask whether the law is a reasonable regulation. And as we explain in our brief, we think that the modern judicial method that is most faithful to that approach is a form of intermediate scrutiny. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, thank you. Uh, Mr. Fletcher, I appreciate your focus on history and tradition and want to uh, explore that and get your thoughts on one thing. As you say, there is a history and tradition, and it exists in the present day of permitting regimes. So the issue before us will have effects, but it's a narrow legal issue of shall issue versus may issue, and it'll have substantial effects. But there is a tradition of permitting regimes. But how do we think about, do you think, kind of a separate tradition that the Chief Justice and others have referred to in our constitutional law of concern about too much discretion in exercise of authority over constitutional rights and the too much discretion can lead to all sorts of problems as our history uh, shows. So you've got the tradition of permitting, but how, how do we think about, fold in just a general concern about too much discretion? So I, I appreciate that concern. I, I think here's how I would think about it. Uh, first, I would say you, there is a substantial history of discretion in this particular area, starting out with juries in the Texas and uh, West Virginia type regimes that I talked about now, moving into permitting officers. And I think that's inherent in any system. If you say a permit is going to be conditioned upon a showing that you have a genuine your specific need for self-defense, then someone's got to make the decision about whether or not you've made that showing. New York has decided it's best to do that by delegating the authority to local officers, local judges who are most familiar with local conditions. 
I do appreciate the concern about discretion, and I think if the court were to conclude that some sort of good cause, sort of self-defense-based exception is, is required, uh, then the court might conclude that some more predictable or stringent or prescriptive guidelines are required, that you can't have that much discretion uh, if the court concludes that that sort of good cause exception is actually constitutionally required. Thank you. Appreciate it. Justice Barrett? Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Clement? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a few quick points in rebuttal. First of all, I want to highlight that when the government was asked for its interest behind this permitting regime, it said that if it went to a different regime, it would multiply the number of firearms in circulation. In a country with the Second Amendment as a fundamental right, simply having more firearms cannot be a problem and can't be a government interest just to put a cap on another number of firearms. And that just underscores how completely non-tailored this law is. It might be well-tailored to keeping the number of handguns down, but it's not well-tailored to identifying people who pose a particular risk or anything else because it deprives a typical New Yorker of their right to carry for self-defense. Second point I want to make is just about population density. There's been a lot of discussion about that, but it's very much a double-edged sword because when there's a population density, that's an awful lot of people who all have Second Amendment rights. And so you can't just simply say we're not going to have Second Amendment rights in the areas where there's dense population. And I would say here experience does tell you a lot. And by my count, seven of the ten largest cities in America measured by population are in shall-issue jurisdictions. And I mentioned them, cities like Phoenix, Chicago, Houston. These are large cities where it hasn't been a problem. If you want to look at the empirical evidence, and I know, Justice Breyer, you asked about this, please also look at the English brief on the top side, because it's a very rigorous statistical analysis that shows that as a matter of actually doing statistics right, there's no difference here. And what the only difference you really see is that people who have a handgun for self-defense end up with a better outcome. They're not shot. They're, they're not made victims. But the English brief, I think, is really worth taking a look at. I want to say a quick word just about permitting. Um, there may be limiting permitting in other contexts, like grade permitting, but I'm not aware of any context whatsoever where in order to get a permit, you have to show that you have a particularly good need to exercise your constitutional right. And I think that is the absolute central defect with New York's regime here. Um, I want to say a quick word about the history that my friend from the Solicitor General's office emphasized. Um, it's telling that his first example is Tennessee. If you look at the Heller decision, Tennessee is a problematic state in terms of its history. Uh, the court gave that Tennessee Supreme Court first came out with the IMET decision, which the majority opinion in Heller criticized. It then came out with the Simpson decision and the Andrews decision, both of which protected Second Amendment rights, and the majority opinion in Heller praised those decisions at the same time that it criticized AMET. So to the extent there was an 1821 statute, I would put it in the same box as the AMET decision. Texas, which is their next example, and their only other uh, 19th century example, if I heard my friend correctly, is even more problematic to rely on because Texas had a specific constitutional amendment that was similar to the English Bill of Rights but different from the Second Amendment that allowed the legislature to put specific restrictions on the right. So relying on 1871 Texas is highly problematic from a historical perspective, and that just leaves them with 20th century examples, which we concede, but by that point, 
the collective rights view of the Second Amendment was everywhere. Let me finish just by saying there's absolutely no need for a remand here. There are interesting statistics that could be developed, but none of them are relevant to the two central defects in this regime. First, that in order to exercise a constitutional right that New York is willing to concede extends outside the home, you have to show that you have an atypical need to exercise the right that distinguishes you from the general community. That describes a privilege. It does not describe a constitutional right. That is a sufficient basis to invalidate the law, but then there's the discretion. And the discretion here has real-world costs. If you want to look at it, look at the amicus brief in our support by the Bronx public defenders and other public defenders. The cost of this kind of discretion is that people are charged with violent crimes, even though they have no private, no prior record, just because they're trying to exercise their constitutional right to self-defense. And if you want to know how this impacts policing, one of the way essentially making everybody in New York City a presumptive person who is unlawfully carrying is that leads to stopping and frisking everybody. The framers, I think, had a different vision of the Fourth Amendment and the Second Amendment, and that is that individuals get to make their decision about whether or not they want to carry a firearm outside the home for self-defense. In 43 states, people are able to do that. It, has not, it doesn't mean everybody ends up caring, and it doesn't mean that those 43 states have any more problems with violent crimes or anything else than the six or seven jurisdictions that don't honor the text, the history of the Second Amendment, and Heller. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. through the whole case um, when they bring the next part of the case up we'll, we'll, we, we will revisit this um, I think that this case laid out a lot of good positive stuff for, um, for us to be able to chew on right so if you, um, <coughs> if you need to go back and take a listen to the archives it's a lot of good information here um, next week we'll touch on the third amendment Alright, we'll look at the third and the fourth amendment because uh, it shouldn't take us more than one show to get through each one of those. Alright, um, we're going to work our way through these uh, all the way up to the treaties. Alright, um, and we're going to go through some new treaties, things like that. Now, a uh, quick announcement before we get out of here. I'm going to be doing a webinar on the 8th of January. That's a Saturday. We're going to be going into the gun trust. Uh, I'm going to show you how to how to use that properly. Um, you'll be able to use this with the court cases. You'll be able to use this with your private property. Okay. Um, when you're doing transfers, how to do proper transfers, things like that. All right. So that's coming up on the 8th of January. I'll have the link up on the site. Y'all can sign up for that. All right. Um, but with that being said, man, um, if y'all want to holler at me, the call lines are open. If not, we don't have to take too long. We can get out of here tonight. Um, wasn't a huge audience tonight, but the playback, I'm sure we'll have quite a few, quite a few downloads. Um, so with that being said, man, I want to say peace to the gods. 
We're going to get up out of here. Um, I will see y'all next week. I will be doing Friday shows again soon. I'm just um, I'm in the middle of a few things. So once that clears up, um, I'll be back doing Friday shows. That'll be in the evenings. All right? All right. So with that being said, next Sunday we on. I'm right, say peace to the gods. Go to makemorecommerce.com if you need to holler at me. Make sure you sign up for the private membership. It is a free membership. All right. I'm going to be having some new things on the site for you. All right. So with that being said, I'm going to say peace, man. Stand on y'all square. I'll see you next week. Uh-huh. I did it again, nigga. <laughs> Fucked up, right? <laughs> I know. I know what y'all niggas asking yourself. You gonna ever fall off? No. A lot of speculation on the monies I've made. Honeys I've slayed. How is he for real? Is that nigga really paid? Hustles I've met or dealt with direct. Is it true he stayed in beef and slept with a tech? What's the position you hold? Can you really match a triple platinum artist? Buck by buck, but only a single going gold. Rockefeller shit foe. And you're left out in the cold. Is it back to charging motherfuckers 11 for a O? For the millionth time asking me. Questions like Wendy Williams harassing me. They get upset when I catch feelings. Can I get a minute to breathe? And in that minute you leave. While I'm looking at my road, ice. Spinning on my sleeve. Ugh, nice watch, do you really have a spot? Like you said in front of foe, and if so, what block? What you doing in L.A. with Filipinos and essays? Latinos and Chevy down by Pico with Federico. I answer all y'all questions, but then y'all got to go. Now the question I ask you is, how bad you want to know? Black! Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Don't even think about changing the station. You're listening to The Bottom Line with your host, Joey L.